There, now you'll hear me. Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I should say at the outset, you probably gathered, but we want to do our best here to work on the method of preaching called expository preaching, where you just go verse by verse through the Bible uh, and, and just work with what the text is teaching. And so we want to work through the book of 1 Timothy to start. But as this is our first Sunday morning, I want to acknowledge that this is new for, well, really for all of us. We've had a few evening catechism classes here. Uh, some of us have gotten to know each other, but in many ways this is new. This is our first Sunday morning together. Uh, and it's been interesting to hear some of the stories of how people have gotten to this point. There's no question that the last two years have been years of upheaval. And it's happened for many reasons. I've heard from some people that their pastor went woke, or he got fired, or liberalism was creeping into the church, or the flock felt like they were abandoned by the shepherds and left to fend for themselves. Some people have woken up from a spiritual hibernation in the last two years and have suddenly realized the need for a church family and to get deeper into the Word of God. Realize you've got children that aren't going to train themselves. They need to be trained. And it's hard to teach our children things that mom and dad don't understand. And so God is using this. And it's been painful for many of us. I've heard many painful stories. In my own case, it involves... Four generations of loyalty to a church that have come to an end. And it's difficult. Many of you will have stories like that. But God is good and he is doing something. In Hebrews 12, 25-27, we are reminded that periodically God is pleased to shake the world. And he tells us why he does this. He is pleased to shake the world so that he can reveal those things which cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God is an unshakable reality. And despite all of our faults and weaknesses, it appears that the only place left in the entire world that has access to reality is the church. We need to be the church. And if God is shaking the world, it is for our good. It must be, despite whatever pain comes with it. So, as we set off on this venture, as we seek to nurture and care for this new but exciting little seedling of a church plant that God has put in our hands, it will be important for all of us to focus on the right things. Looking back, second-guessing, nursing past hurts, feeding bitterness, and other unhealthy behaviors cannot be the basis for unity of a new church family. Finding other Christians who are like-minded in this time is a breath of fresh air for many of us. And someday the current situation that we are in will be over and it will be behind us and we will need something else to talk about. And I have sensed a healthy spirit here. People desire fellowship. People desire to be fed the Word of God without apology, without nuancing it till it means nothing. Nuancing the Bible to death so we can't say anything about anything. People are tired of that. Many people desire to feel like they belong in a church family. 
that has their back. They're desiring like-minded friends. They're desiring godly fellowship. They're desiring straight-up Bible teaching. And by God's grace, we want to provide all of those things. We also want to foster a kind of church unity that takes place not just across geography, but also across history. Right? How disconnected are we from what our uh, forefathers thought? Very disconnected. And by God's grace, we will also reacquaint ourselves uh, and build that unity with the church in ages past. And we don't want to do this because there was some golden age that we want to recreate. Every age has its problems and we can never recreate another age. But because the goal of Christian maturity is for each generation to stand on the shoulders of the last one so we can look farther and do more than they could. Okay, So we're building. We're not trying to get back somewhere. Uh, We're trying to stand on the shoulders of giants so we can see yet further than they could. And we want to acknowledge that the source of all knowledge and all truth is ultimately contained in God's word. God's revelation of himself. What he says about who he is. Right? And so think of the Bible like a, a mountain stream. It's purest at the top. As it runs down, it picks up debris, it picks up pollution. Uh, and so our job as Christians is to drink nearest to the top as possible. Right? And of course, the only place free from pollution is the Word of God. And so we want to focus uh, unashamedly on that. And as we start this, thinking about what is an appropriate place to start something like this, First Timothy is a great book. Because 1 Timothy, Paul's epistles to a new pastor, gives many instructions for the church. And as we work through it, we're going to see instructions about the qualifications for elders, how to pray for one another, uh, how to spread the gospel, how to encourage each other, uh, intergenerational fellowship. And that's another thing I think many people are, are missing. And it's good to see an age range here. How often do we send this age group off that way during church and then this age group goes over there and this age group goes over there and people are 18 years old and they've never sat in a church service? Right? What a shame. What a shame. 18 years old and you've never learned the vocabulary of the church. You've never learned the rhythm of a worship service. The warp and the woof of how God's people worship. Uh, And so if you have a small kid who's restless or a baby who's crying... Then I say, wonderful, wonderful. The only thing worse than a distracting child is a place where there is no life, right? Uh, And so the intergenerational feel is important, and we want to encourage that. So we're going to get into 1 Timothy 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses here this morning. And I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. 
Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. And those are the words of God. You may be seated. So let's work through this. The, the background here is the church in Ephesus. So if you read through the book of Ephesians, it is written to that church where Timothy is now pastor. Uh, and that book was written very shortly before Paul wrote this epistle to his young student pastor there, Timothy. Possibly within a year or two, uh, this epistle is written after the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> and where, uh, where Ephesians is instructions to the church as a whole... Here, Paul is offering instructions to the one who is going to take over for him in the church. Uh, but, of course, because this is scripture, uh, the whole church can listen in, including the church here today. So Paul opens, saying he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. And so here we see Paul is clearly asserting Pauline authorship. Right? He's saying he's the author. And, of course... Every claim in the Bible is up for dispute by those who are of a theologically liberal bent. Some would argue that this is not written by Paul. The theology is far too advanced. Right? You hear that lots. But, but it's clear Paul takes credit for this letter. And it says that he is an apostle. He identifies himself as an apostle who is writing by the command of God our Savior. And let's stop there. Paul's role as an apostle is worth considering. What is an apostle? What is an apostle? Well, on a, one basic meaning can just simply mean it's someone who's on a mission or someone who's uh, commissioned to a certain ministry or has a certain message. And we know that Jesus selected 12 men to minister with him. And he gave the keys to his church to these 12 men, to these 12 apostles, during his earthly ministry. And these are the original leaders of the church of Jesus. After Jebus betrayed Christ and ultimately committed suicide, the remaining apostles selected a replacement, and we read about that in Acts 1, verse 21 and 22. And interestingly, one of the criteria that they had to pick uh, from among the men who were there was that these men who were going to replace Judas had to have been with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They had to be an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, and Paul himself, even though he wasn't one of those twelve, he clearly says in Acts chapter 9 and then again in 1 Corinthians 9 that he did in fact see the risen Christ. Okay, so, so one of the marks of a true apostleship is that you had to be with Jesus in the flesh. You had to be commissioned by Christ himself. Okay, and so in one loose sense, the word can be used by anyone who is commissioned for a specific task. But in this more precise task that, or, or definition that Paul is using it here... Apostle meant you had to be alive at the time of Jesus. You had to see Jesus in the flesh to be an apostle. And this is why they are specially commissioned by Christ to write scripture. Okay? That's why they could write scripture and we can't. Because there are no apostles today. Not in that sense. Much confusion exists about this. Uh, but there are not apostles today in that sense. 
Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And a foundation is a one-time thing, right? You don't build your house and you lay the foundation and then you're happy with that, so you put another foundation on top of that, right? Eventually you've got to start building the house. Once the foundation is there, it's a once-for-all thing, okay? And so it is with the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. This isn't an ongoing ministry. It's a one-time ministry to lay the foundation and the church goes on that foundation, the teaching of the apostles is now perfectly preserved for us in Scripture, in the Bible. Okay, and, and of course this is disputed today. Some claim for themselves the prophet uh, or the office of prophet or apostle, uh, but that no longer exists. The receiving of God's revelation, of recording it in Scripture, is a completed task. The Word of God is perfect and it is perfectly sufficient. And this is important. This means that there are significant changes between what was happening in Paul's time and what is happening since that time, since the days of the Apostle, now in the church age. And, and we might be tempted to think, well, that's a downgrade, right? These Apostles could talk directly to God. They got revelation. They got knocked off their horse. They got blinded. And then they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Uh, and, and we don't get to do that. That must seem like a downgrade. But let's think about that. Is that really such a downgrade? Right? They were getting, the church in Ephesus did not have the completed Bible. They were getting information piecemeal, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. Right? And, and so no church in the time of the apostles had the completed canon of scripture like we have. They were getting piecemeal what we have the entire thing. We are in a much more privileged spot today than they were then because we have the entirety of the word of God today. Something they did not have. And think of how amazing it is, if you're holding a Bible in your hand... In 2 Timothy 3, it says that the Word of God is, uh, is breathed out and it is sufficient that the man of God may be lacking nothing. It is completely sufficient for correction, for reproof, for teaching, that the man of God may lack nothing. Okay? If you have a Bible in your hands, you have everything you need to know from God. And that is remarkable. You can say something that a first century Christian could not say. You have every bit of information God needs you to have. Okay? We are the ones in a privileged position. We have the Word of God completed. And so try to get, to get back to the shadowlands when we're living in the light uh, is putting an emphasis on the wrong spot. Okay? <clears throat> we have the full picture. And so Paul is drawing attention to his apostleship right here at the very beginning of this letter. What he is writing to Timothy isn't just some personal thoughts or some ramblings. Uh, what he is writing is the very words of God by command of God. So this is serious business. The inspiration of scripture means that every word of scripture, while the, the personality and the words of the author comes through, God providentially oversees it so that every last word, Jesus says every jot and tittle, every dotted I, every cross T is exactly, exactly as God wanted it. Okay? There are no mistakes in the Bible. This is the word of God down to jot and tittle inspiration according to Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we've seen that this letter is from the Apostle Paul, and here it's addressed to his student, Timothy. Okay, and the relationship between student and teacher is so close that Paul calls Timothy his child in the faith. 
So this is almost like a father-son kind of mentor uh, relationship. And he's handing off the baton from Paul to Timothy. Uh, and this is significant. What's happening here is highly significant. In the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, we move from apostolic ministry to a ministry of a regular elder and pastor. This is a significant change that you see in the pages of Scripture itself. Okay? Notice how he doesn't tell Timothy to get revelation like he got. He doesn't teach Timothy how to become a faith healer. He doesn't teach Timothy how to write Scripture. He doesn't teach Timothy how to go down Damascus and get blinded by God on his horse. We're moving from the extraordinary to the ordinary. Okay? We're moving from the temporary to the permanent, from the partial to the perfect. And you see that transition happening here in the very pages of Scripture as we see the church being handed off from an apostle to a pastor. Okay? And so we are living in the same stream today as Timothy uh, in that sense, because now the, the church is up and running with the Word of God as our guide. The teaching of the apostle is preserved for us in uh, in the Bible. And of course that fits with the pattern all through Scripture. Think of, the, think of how uh, redemptive history unfolds. This fits the pattern, right? Uh, the Bible isn't just one long string of the miraculous. Rather what you have is, while God is always providentially caring for His creation and moving all things according to the story that He desires to tell, there are times in redemptive history where God steps in in a very decisive way. Right? Think, for example, of the Exodus or Noah's flood. Right? These moments in time that are so clearly God stepping into history in a supernatural, miraculous way. And what does He do when those events happen? He raises up prophets or apostles to record and interpret these events for the church. And their record gets put into Scripture. Okay? And, and often, uh, their ministry is validated by what the Bible calls sign gifts. Right? By these miraculous ability to heal. The apostles could just go and touch someone and they were healed. And that's something we have no record that Timothy or any pastor after the apostles were doing. Right? It doesn't mean God's not healing people supernaturally anymore. But it means that that apostolic gift where you can just go touch someone and cure them. Uh, there's a shift here. Okay? Uh, and so the shift that you see from apostleship to normal church is, uh, is consistent with what you see in the rest of the Bible where, uh, where the miraculous signs that surround these big events in redemptive history come and then scripture gets added to uh, and then we go back to normal life again. And of course, how do you top the birth, the ministry, the death, resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus? How do you top that? Right? Of course we'd expect apostles to be there to record this for us uh, and to give instructions to the church. And then Paul gives an interesting greeting here. He says in verse 2, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, well, we've just talked about how the Holy Spirit is inspiring the apostles. And now we have a reference to the Father and the Son. Where's the Holy Spirit? Right? Hopefully everyone here believes in the Trinity. So where's the Holy Spirit? Why is He missing here? Why is there a greeting from the Father and the Son, uh, but not from the Holy Spirit? Okay? Uh, and let's think of it this way. Grace, mercy, and peace aren't just stuff that God gives to us. You know that game where you put a quarter in and then there's the claw up top, right? And then you go find a stuffed animal and you can never ever get anything because it's rigged against you, right? You all know that thing. 
Okay? So grace, mercy, and peace isn't stuff that you can grab with that claw once you put your coin in. God doesn't just give us stuff detached from who He is. Okay? The gift and the giver are intricately tied together. So, along with some teachers, commentators, like Jonathan Edwards, who's one of my favorite pastors in church history, he notes that the grace, mercy, and peace is the Holy Spirit. Okay? This isn't just stuff that comes from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to the church. So the grace, mercy, and peace isn't just stuff. It comes in the, in the form of a person, of the Holy Spirit, who is living and active and present in Christ's church. Okay? He's the one that transforms hearts. He's the one uh, that allows us to be merciful and kind and gracious uh, with one another. Okay? So this isn't a gift uh, without a giver behind it. The grace, mercy, and peace is the Holy Spirit. So you can read this, uh, that the church is being blessed with the Holy Spirit from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? Uh, and, and again, we can maybe think about this for yourself. If you're a parent and you have gifts that you want to give to your children, uh, if your kids just want the gift and then they want to go away, you start to feel used. Right? It's a much greater joy to give gifts if your children are thankful uh, and they can see how the gift is attached to the giver. Right? It's, it's meant for relational strength to happen, relational durability. Uh, and so, again, by giving us the Holy Spirit, by giving us the Counselor, God is giving us these gifts in a way that ties us closer to Him. It's not just stuff and then we can walk away and forget where it comes from. In verses 3 to 4, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promotes speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Okay, so Paul had to leave to go to Macedonia, and he leaves Timothy in charge of the church while he's going there. And it seems clear that different doctrine was already creeping its way into the church. Okay, because Paul gives that warning. And he says, I, he charges Timothy, and that's military language. You've got a command from God, right? Through an apostle, you essentially have a command from God uh, to guard this, Okay. Uh, and he doesn't say exactly what this different doctrine is. There's not a clear, you know, sustained explanation of what it is. But the key is that it was different. It was something different than what the apostles were teaching. Okay, so Christ entrusted his apostles, including Paul, with his church and of advancing the gospel, which means that it's important that nothing gets added to it, nothing gets subtracted from it, and nothing gets altered inside that body of doctrine. Okay? Uh, and one common brand of false religion that was creeping in, and it seems to be what was happening here, as we'll soon see, was a Greek religious system called Gnosticism. Okay? You maybe heard that word, Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism just means secret knowledge. That's really what it means. Okay? And so where the Christian gospel is concerned about facts of history, like an empty tomb, or a man with an actual physical body who died at an actual time in history on an actual tree. Okay, Christians are concerned about those things, about history, about facts. The Gnostics were very concerned uh, to point out that everything in the physical world was bad. Okay, the physical world is bad, the spiritual world is good, which runs directly contrary to the Christian message. Okay? Um, so as a result, the Gnostics emphasized private revelations, 
spiritual experiences, secret knowledge, that they'd get a secret word of knowledge. And then they taught that material things like food or drink or sex, those things were bad. Okay? So for the Gnostics, salvation meant escape from the world. How are we ultimately saved? By getting out of the world. That's our ultimate salvation. And of course, the Christians were concerned with the world. Uh, and the Christian gospel isn't about getting out of the world. It's about the restoration of the world. Okay? It's about a new heavens and a new earth coming down uh, and restoring God's creation. And we discussed in some of our catechism evenings how much this Gnostic heresy survives in the church. Right? Go to any evangelical funeral and you'll still get this Gnostic vibe that salvation is that they're finally free from a physical body. And what we often leave out is that the Bible is concerned about the resurrection of the physical body. A restored heavens and earth. Salvation is not getting out of the world. Salvation is God restoring the world, including our bodies. And so we shouldn't uh, fall prey to the same idea that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. God likes the physical world so much that he made it. Okay? The physical world is good. It's been corrupted by sin. But there's nothing wrong with bodies or food uh, as such. And it's likely that what we're looking at here is Gnosticism because Paul talks about the myths and the endless genealogies. So there's a mystical element that's happening here. These myths uh, uh, and these legendary genealogies. And often in, in the Jewish form that crept into the church, uh, they had legends that... Uh, involve even the Old Testament characters, things that the Bible never taught, uh, and they, these kind of word-of-mouth myths or legends start getting attributed to these people, and it became uh, kind of a bizarre way to handle people like Moses or Abraham uh, with information that the Bible never gives us. Uh, and so it, it seems most likely that what we have here is, in fact, Gnosticism. And as we read further, it says these myths were leading to speculation instead of stewardship. Paul is concerned about stewardship. And what's stewardship? Stewardship means we take uh, the gifts that God has given to us and then we try to turn a profit on them, right? God uh, entrusts us with something. Uh, we are to, to guard it and then to turn a profit on it, right? We're, we're stewards of the gospel. We preserve that gospel and then it does stuff in our life and in the world around us. That's what stewardship looks like. But these people were going off into these wild speculations, right? And what is speculation other than getting deeper into myself, into my own imagination, right? Uh, and if you people would get into my head, you would realize that my imagination is the most interesting thing around, right? Just like every one of yours, right? We love ourselves. We love hearing about ourselves. That's why things like the Enneagram or personality tests are so popular, right? It's not necessarily that they're totally wrong, but we love to find out about ourselves because everyone here is the most important person that they know, right? At least if you're like me, you are. Okay? And, and, and the Christian gospel helps us to get us out of ourselves. Don't get into yourself with speculation. Get out of yourself into the story that God is telling. Okay? <clears throat> so where Paul is concerned about stewardship, these people are going into speculation and it seems to be unfruitful. It's not resulting in sound Christian character. And you start to get a picture of people who are chasing every new thing, right? And then, does that still happen today? <laughs> Do you still find people who are distracted by the, the newest thing, right? Well, this new fad is coming. I better get on that. Uh, or, and then 15 minutes later, that one's boring and there's another new thing. And, and we better jump on that. Um, it's, it's unfruitful. It doesn't help us grow into deep Christian maturity. 
And we want deep Christian maturity, not always chasing the next thing. And then verse 5, and I think this whole passage hinges on verse 5. So I think this explains the whole passage here. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So in verse 3, Paul had charged Timothy to make sure that the doctrine stays pure. And here we find out why that's so important. We find the reason behind it. The reason to keep the doctrine pure isn't so that we can score debate points or feel intellectually superior. What's the aim here? What's the aim of the charge? It's love, right? It's love. Why do you have to keep the doctrine pure? Not because you're smarter, but because love. That's why the doctrine is so important, is because love is so important. Okay? So love isn't something you can just find anywhere. You can't go to Costco and buy three pallets of love and then bring it home. Right? That love has to come from somewhere. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Keep reading. Love comes out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right? So we can't gin those things up. Rather, they are a gift from the Holy Spirit through the gospel, the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith. And what issues from that? Love. Love. Okay? The only way we can have those things, which is the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith, is for us to be born again, for us to have a new heart by the Spirit of God. Right? The prophet Ezekiel talks about the Holy Spirit, or God through the Holy Spirit, taking out our heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. Okay? The heart that we showed up here with is corrupted by sin. That heart needs to come out. And the rebirth, being born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that open heart surgery where the Holy Spirit takes out the dead heart of stone and puts in the living heart of flesh full of new desires and, and many new gifts. Such as a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We don't have access to any of those things apart from the gospel of Jesus. So it's through the gospel and the gospel alone that we can have the pure heart, the good conscience, and the sincere faith that are going to produce the love. This means the doctrine must be guarded so that the true saving gospel can be guarded and produce the kind of people who are able to love one another. We preserve the doctrine so that the gospel can be preserved. We preserve the gospel so that people can be transformed. And we want transformed people so that God's glory can be on display throughout all his creation. And where there's no gospel, there's only counterfeit love. There's not the real thing. When we divorce the concept of love from the person who gives us that love, the results can be extremely destructive. And I'm sure we can all think of many examples of how destructive counterfeit love is. In Proverbs 12, verse 10, we're reminded that the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Think about that. How many ways can you think of that? Right? In our day, the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And in the long term, uh, we see the fruits of ungodly compassion. It's disastrous. Right? Ungodly social justice, ungodly compassion can only lead to more destruction and to more chaos. The real thing, the real genuine article of love, is present where the gospel is present. And this is why the doctrine must be preserved. So instead of viewing head and heart, right? I think sometimes we think 
uh, on, a, on a spectrum. When we think about head and heart, right, what we know versus what we feel, there's your heart over there at that end of Don's shop on a spectrum, and your head's over there. And you've got to pick some kind of balancing point that you're happy with where you pick between head and heart. Right? Pick your spot where you're comfortable giving up enough heart or enough head that you're comfortable there. But that's not at all how it works. Rather, think of it more like a fire that needs air and fuel to work. Okay? Uh, more air, more fuel equals more fire. Okay? This isn't a spectrum where you have to pick between head and heart. This is head and heart have to both be fully involved. Because we're whole people. We have hearts, we have emotions, and we have heads. We have thoughts. And both need to be involved in the Christian life. So don't think of this as a trade-off somewhere. Think of this as both need to be fully involved. And the more of each you have, the more vibrant a church community you have, the more vibrant a Christian walk you have. Carrying on in verses 6 and 7. It says that certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay, and this discussion goes back to the kind of false teaching that we have already seen referenced earlier in this passage. Uh, and again, we see that the point of the doctrine is to guard the gospel so that people can be transformed into a deeper walk with God. And the false teachers have swerved from this, right? They, they desire to be teachers. They want to come up with a new and interesting thing, right? And, and you'll realize that the gospel that the church has today is no different than the gospel that Martin Luther recovered in 1517, okay? And it's no different than what the medieval, uh, the medieval church had hundreds of years before him or what the early church fathers had before them. Or ultimately what the apostles had originally. Okay? The gospel does not change. The church has been guarded with the same gospel for 2,000 years. And so if this sounds like the same old stuff getting repeated, it's because it is. And because we're forgetful, we need to be reminded of the same gospel. We need to continue guarding the doctrine. Okay? Because there's always distractions. There's always attacks from the outside. The church is always getting hammered on. And as one reformer, Martin Butzer, said when he was uh, at a trial before a prince who was clear his stated mission was to destroy the church, to hammer it to death, Martin Butzer looked at the prince and said, yes, you know what, you are a hammer. But the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. Okay, That's our job. Keep in there. Guard the doctrine. Guard the gospel. Because the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. Okay? The enemies of God cannot succeed in destroying the church. They cannot succeed in destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter how it looks on the outside sometimes. Okay? And these people who are distracting, who want to get carried away, this isn't a new thing. This is happening in the, in the New Testament times already among the apostles. Uh, they're there and they're lacking understanding. And again we'll see in Paul's second uh, epistle to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy... He talks about these people in terms of always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Okay? Can we think of people like that? Always learning, and they never get there. Right? And, and that, again, gives this indication of these fads that keep coming up, these distractions that keep coming up. Uh, people running off for the newest shiny thing. And we're told not to do that. Verses 8 and the beginning of 9. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And one thing that often happens, whether you're in Ephesus in the year 62, or whether you are in southeastern Manitoba in the year 2022, is that when the doctrine of the gospel is left aside in favor of mysticism or liberalism or whatever the next great thing is, the law of God almost always gets injured. It almost always gets damaged. Okay, And there's two ways we do this. And it's really, both of them are the different sides of the same coin because both of them involve downgrading God's law. And one is called, if you're writing notes here, if you want to learn a new word today, uh, one of these words is called antinomianism, which just means against the law. People say, okay, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, so I can just do whatever I want. Right? It's all about grace. So I can treat my wife however I want. It's all about grace. Right? So I can keep smoking crack. I can keep getting drunk. Right? Because I'm under grace, I'm not under law. Right? That's one way of downgrading and defiling God's law. Another way is legalism. Right? Where we start adding man-made rules to God's law as though God's law isn't perfectly sufficient. So we, we start adding little man-made things. And legalism works on the assumption that we can keep God's law. Which is also downgrading it. Right? If God's law is something I can keep, I'm bringing it down to my level. So the antinomian and the legalist are both guilty of the same sin of not taking God's law nearly seriously enough. Okay? Legalists treat God's law with as much contempt and as much hatred as the antinomians do. And so there's much confusion about what God's law is for. Those who think that the gospel means or that the gospel means that God's law is just obliterated and there's no instructions for us how to live uh, anymore are misguided, as are those who add to it. And so it's helpful for us to think about, well, what is the lawful use of God's law? If there's an unlawful way to use it, there must be a lawful way to use it. And hopefully to help clear some of the confusion in our heads of what is God's law for, traditionally... We have understood there to be three uses of God's law. And if you're making notes, you can write these down. And if not, just commit them to memory. One is just simply to restrain evil in the world. We're made in God's image, so we know the difference between right and wrong without anyone telling us. We know murder is wrong. We know lying is wrong. We know theft is wrong. We know these things in our heart because we are made in God's image. And so that law is stamped on us. But then when God gives us that law through Moses... And many nations in the world that have been formed on Christian principles reiterate these laws. It's a steady reminder that there's expectations. There's right and there's wrong. And so one use of God's law is to restrain evil in the world. And, and no matter how bad we see the world around us, could it be worse? Yeah, it absolutely could be. Right? God is restraining a million evils in this world right now. Okay? Think of that. There's an old line about the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. An optimist is the man who thinks things could always be worse. And the pessimist is the man who agrees with him. Okay? It could be worse. It could be worse. But God is restraining evil right now in this room and in the world. Second use of God's law is to serve as a kind of mirror. To show us that we don't measure up to God's standard. If God's law is a picture of his perfect holy character. And we're confronted with that law. We very soon see... Uh, that we don't measure up. We very soon see we have a problem. Right? And if, if we ever think that the New Testament means a softening of God's law, right? As though in the Old Testament God took sin seriously, but now in the New Testament we have grace, and so God doesn't take his law so seriously. Think of the way Jesus treats the law. Okay? I can say before God, I have never committed adultery on my wife. Okay? I've kept the seventh commandment. 
Yay, Matt. Okay? And I trust that's hopefully true for most of us. What does Jesus say? You look at a woman with lust, what have you done? Committed adultery with her in your heart. Okay? Jesus makes the law more damning. It's more crushing. Now every man in this room is guilty. Okay? I've never killed somebody, and I trust no one else in here has either. Right? Yay for us. We kept the sixth commandment. We know where we're at. What does Jesus say? If you're angry at someone, you're guilty of that. Okay? Jesus' use of the law damns us more than Moses does. Okay? This is something we cannot manage. This is a pit we cannot climb ourselves out of. God's law is there to serve as a mirror to show us that we have failed. And like a mirror, you look at your mirror and you see your dirty face. Does, can your mirror do anything about that dirty face? No, it can't. It can show you that you need to get washed. But something other than the mirror has to wash you. And so uh, this use of the law points us to our need for the gospel. To go to Jesus for our righteousness because we clearly can't earn it. And once Jesus forgives us, once he pardons us, once he cleans us, once he puts us back together after the law has broken us, he gently guides us back to his law as a picture of how we are to live. What does love of God and what does love of neighbor look like? Well, we have it in God's law. So Paul says the law is good, which means it must still have some abiding use. It can't be abolished. But there is an unlawful way to use it. And so... We may also think, by law, what are we referring to? And we're referring to any command that God gives. And the Ten Commandments are an obvious example, right, uh, of, of what God's law looks like. And so because we know God's laws, evil is restrained in the world. The law acts as this mirror. And then lastly, the law acts as a guide to grow us in our Christian walk, to help us to become more like Jesus Christ. Okay? And then reading on to the last portion here. Verses 9b through 11. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Can I look closely at the order of those sins? What do you notice? Look very closely. The way they're ordered. And I'll give you a hint. Don read it already this morning in Exodus 20. That's the Ten Commandments in order. Okay? First of all, it talks about ungodly, unholy, and profane. Most likely a reference to the first table of the law. Those commandments that tell us, you know, don't have any gods before him. Don't make any false images. Don't use the name of the Lord in vain. Uh, to observe the Sabbath. Those kind of laws which show us how we are to relate to God. Those have been broken. If this language should ungodly, the unholy, and the profane. But then he mentions the second table of the law here, right? One, about honoring father and mother, murder, sexual sin, stealing things that don't belong to us, including another person, enslavers, okay? and finally lying. And he picks an extreme example in many of those to make his point very clear uh, about the kinds of people that we are, the kinds of lawbreakers that we are. And the law is given to restrain this sin, so it's not as widespread as it possibly could be. But it does show that we all need forgiveness. Everyone here has broken God's law to some degree or another, and we all need forgiveness. We all need a righteousness that comes from outside of us, like a, like a coat, rather than us just 
ginning up moral perfection in ourselves. Okay? So the point of this passage is that we are all sinners in need of grace. The law is given to show us this, and the only way out that the Bible provides is through the gospel. We cannot manage our sin. And because the gospel is the only way out, again, this is the reminder of that it needs to be preserved at all costs. The doctrine cannot be different than what the apostles recorded for us in Scripture. So the sound doctrine of verse 10 is related to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in verse 11. And just like we've already seen, the gift of forgiveness isn't just a thing that God gives us and then he walks away. The gift is connected to the giver. He gives us the Holy Spirit at the same time that he gives us forgiveness. To empower us, to embolden us, to give us hearts with the desire to follow God's law. To live the renewed Christian life. He adopts us into his family. And then he ushers us into a church family. And the church family is a small but imperfect picture of what the new creation is going to be like. Surrounded by saints. Glorifying God. So Paul, as an apostle, was entrusted with this gospel. And he faithfully hands it off to his son, his student Timothy. And by writing it down in scripture, he also handed it off to all of us. It's ours to preserve and to proclaim, both in the church and outside to the world. So that the supremacy and the authority of Jesus Christ can be seen far and near. Let's close with prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you raised up prophets and apostles to record your revelation for us. To show us who you are, Lord, and then also to show us who we are. And to help us see that we need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. Lord, we cannot do it. We cannot manage our sin. We cannot drum up enough righteousness inside of us to be pardoned. Lord, your law clearly shows us that we have broken your design. We are living in rebellion. Lord, and we need your Holy Spirit to guide us back, to give us a new heart, to help us to see that the righteousness that you will accept is the righteousness that you give us as a gift. Lord, I pray for each one here that already knows you. I pray that uh, as we hear this gospel repeated over and over again through our lives, that we wouldn't see it as something boring. But that it's like food that we need every day for strength and for nourishment to carry us on. Lord, and for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in their hearts to see the need and then come to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time together. pray that as we close in song, I pray that you would be with each one here as we go about our weeks. That we can live to your honor and to your glory. And that we would love each other well out of a pure and renewed heart. We pray this all by the grace of your Son. Amen.